Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This week, we are switching bands. We are going to take a look at the first full release by Motley Crue, Too Fast for Love, and we'll also talk about the single that they put out uh, before they came out with the full record, Toast of the Town, and um, Stick to Your Guns. And so I'm Dave Lucarelli. I'm John Carson. I'm Mike Gavigan. I'm Dave O'Leary. And so Motley Crue is forming in 1981 Los Angeles. Uh, Nikki Six has been playing in a band called London. They're a relatively popular local band. Um, he's playing with a guy named Lizzie Gray, but he's unhappy. He doesn't like uh, the direction the band is going in. So he starts holding back some material. He starts rehearsing with a drummer that he has met Tommy Lee, they start auditioning various guitarists. The original idea is it's going to be a two guitar band. They find Mick Mars. Mick Mars doesn't want it to be. So they're, they're kind of shuffling members. They get a guy named Odin Peterson uh, to be their vocalist. And they go into Crystal Sound Studios with Laura Livingston uh, being the engineer to record a few songs for a demo uh, initially. And they run out of time and money uh, <laughs> in the studio. And uh, Tommy Lee ends up making out with Laura to try to extend the studio time to get them to finish the singles. Um, so meanwhile, along the way, after they've got these songs recorded, uh, they have a falling out with Odin. So uh, they go back in the studio, they erase Odin's vocals, and Vince Neil starts singing on uh, these songs. Uh, the cover of The Raspberries Tonight, a song called Can't Stop the Music, and a song initially called Talk of the Town, which will become Toast of the Town, and a song that Nikki co-wrote with Lizzie Gray uh, called Public Enemy Number One. So, but for now, we'll just talk about the first actual release, which was Talk of the Town or Toast of the Town and Stick to Your Guns. And the band basically gave away the seven inches that they had printed up during their live shows and just tossed them out into the audience. So uh, first up, I guess. Toast of the Town. There's a lot of Hey Kids in there. Uh, I like the song, but it definitely sounds a little bit unfinished, uh, but there's a lot of energy behind it. So, I mean, that makes it um, totally reasonable. Um, but, I mean, yeah, it sounds like a, a demo tape from a band that's just coming out. You know what I mean? It's not amazing, but it's got a lot of energy and a lot of power behind it. Dave? Exactly. I mean, you, you listen to... That and I actually did listen to the entire original letter mix of that first album today. And there, there is just there's something to be said about those early demos from those bands that we love. There's just an energy, uh, there's a naive energy, I guess, you know, that that really comes through. Maybe the performance aren't uh, performances themselves are not a hundred percent, but they're well made up for by the passion, the energy, and the drive of these young guys. And I think it comes through on, on these two particular songs we're talking about now. Mike? 
Yeah, and I would add to that. I think there's a definite uh, Mott the Hoople influence mm. on oh, yeah. Toast of the Town mm -hmm. in a way, for sure. You know, it, it, these guys clearly were absorbing everything they could, absorbing like, you know, new wave of British heavy metal, you know, and local bands like Van Halen. They absorbed a lot of influences from bands that were out at the time and also, you know, bands that were established and they put that into their songs, but they always sound like Motley Crue. And I think that was one of the prime examples of, you know, them sound like Motley Crue. One of the things that's inherent in Nicky's songwriting is he, he has this capacity to remove himself from the subjects that he's writing about and look at them critically, right? So there's, there's the, mm -hmm. this kind of insight in the way that he writes songs about things that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a songwriter, especially one that's that age. You know, when he when he talks about, we're, you know, you're the toast of the town, but you know, it won't last too long. You know, there's that, there's always that that twist where he's able to remove himself and, and yeah. look at himself and be self-reflective about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's evident from this first song. To your point, Dave, if you go, even flash forward to, um, there was, remember, in the days of like the MTV documentary or rockumentary, right? Yeah. There was a great MTV rockumentary on Motley Crue and um, they, they were interviewing all the guys and Tommy, they, they panned to him and he's like, hey man, we were, this is even like the Dr. Feelgood tour. Okay. You know, and, and, and they were asking him like, hey, how's it going on the tour? And he's like, hey, you know, but we always kind of question ourselves like, I don't know, man, you know, is, is anybody to show up? You know, I think we're bombing, man. I think we suck. We suck. I think uh -huh. we're bombing. You know, there was always that kind of self-doubt in the band, but I think that's what kept them, that kept them driven in a way, you know, because they always wanted to be better. They always wanted to kill. <laughs> yeah. To be admired, you know? Yeah, and 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 I think in that same show, there's a there's a uh, comment where they where they they say you know they they were using some shots like that were heavily um, colorized, you know, and they were like, hey, what do you guys think? Is this cool? Maybe it's pretentious. I don't know, you know. <laughs> but there's always been that one step removal where it's like it's the band looking at themselves and 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 commenting on their own image. You know, yeah, um, good to be self-aware in that way. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, OK, we flip it over. Uh, stick to your guns. John. Again, another good song, as David said about uh, the other one, a little naive. And, but with again, with a lot of energy, a lot of I mean, it, it sounds like a demo tape, but it's I mean, not a demo, but you know what I mean? Like a demo song. I am impressed with how um, good it sounds. You know what I mean? In terms of the production, like I can hear everything and, you know, everything comes out all right. Vince Neil's voice is a little thin, but I mean, you know, it, it, it all kind of comes together and works out fine for me. Again, you know, um, <clears throat> it's not the best song that comes from Too Fast for Love. And I'm sort of interested. They pull it off of Too yes. Fast for Love or Electra does. Um, and I think it just it just feels a little bit unfinished, but that's fine. I mean, for a long time, you know. You know, it's a good song um, and it's a nice timepiece into where the band right. was at that time. You know what I mean? So I, I like it for that reason, you know, for the sort of uh, the nostalgia effect of that. I had no nostalgia for it because I had, I had never heard it until now. You know what I mean? Like I didn't know it existed. I think you hear, I think I've heard snippets of it on various radio stations or interviews, but I've never actually heard the full song until this week. Um, 
you know, so it's definitely like more of sort of a nostalgia piece or a time capsule than it is like a great song. Yeah, but, but you know, I mean, to me, it, it, what's fascinating about this and what's fascinating about even going back to some of the other bands that we talked about already is you look at this and it is about a time and a place. And, and you know, these guys at that time, are, you know, they're just trying to find themselves as songwriters. They're not fully obviously developed yet. And they're trying a lot of different things. And mm -hmm. some of it worked, some of it didn't work. But in this particular song, I do like that little break you know, for the solo, where they kind of break down, they do that whole, you know, the interplay between the bass and the drums, it's kind of really funky, you know, it's almost like Mick in Places is trying to experiment with what he's, you know, his approach to what's happening with, you know, with Tommy, and let's be honest, even then, Tommy, I, I have to say, I'll, you know, but I'll get it out of the way at this point in the podcast, Tommy Lee is my favorite member of the band. Far, far and away. He is the um, star of this album, if not of the band, yeah. in terms of... Exactly. Exactly. And, and here it is. I mean, here's his here's, here's proof positive, you know. Um, and so, you know, he's definitely already in, in his place, his zone. Um, you know, I love hearing um, Nikki's bass playing with him, you know, because you really don't get a lot of that in the future with Motley Crue. You know, the bass is almost like it becomes, you know, the foundation of the rhythm section of the song, which is cool. But this is this is Nikki kind of you know, jamming. And, and, you know, then you got, you know, you got Mick trying to kind of put something in there. It almost sounds in time like it's a lure, but then he comes out of it, like he did it maybe intentionally, which is kind of cool, but it's part of that young, we're trying to find, find ourselves, we're trying to find our voice, trying to find the way we write our songs, and it's really evident in this particular song. I like that. I like it. I like it a lot, obviously. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a band trying to find itself, and Nikki's even talked about that. In some ways, Mick's playing was so out there he was struggling to figure out a way to incorporate some of incorporate some of his kind of guitar set pieces into the songs and into the band. Tommy Lee is the star of the band, but Mick Mars is the thing that sets the band apart from other bands. That crunchy guitar sound that he gets is just you can't beat it. That whole you know drop down you know, a full step that is the Motley Crue sound. You know, and, and, and it's unique. I don't think without Mick Mars, I'm not sure they would have found that. No, I don't think so at all. I think I think their stuff is very, I mean, it's very telling that they choose a Raspberry song to cover. I mean, they're writing pop songs. You know, they're, they're not writing, sure. you know, Iron Maiden. They're not writing, you know, Judas Priest or, or Dark, you know, mm -hmm. Cloven Hoof or whatever, which is the new band yeah. that I've gone down the rabbit hole with. But they're writing pop songs. They're writing, you know, California um singles you know what i mean, I mean just to, by comparison one of the songs they were playing live around this period was a cover of the beatles paperback writer yeah you know mm -hmm. so that's how pop they were going yeah so mike your thoughts on this song yeah i just i just go back to the origins of the band i mean even just like the influences on mick mars as a guitar player he was influenced by guys like you know um you know bebop deluxe and you know he was clearly a guitar player in the band at the time like that could have been influenced by van halen but he was also influenced by guys like Mike, Michael Bloomfield, you know. Oh yeah. You know, from you know, it was like blues style guitar playing, whereas he should have sounded more advanced than he was. But that the blues thing kind of definitely comes through in his guitar playing, and compare that to also to the fact that they were competing with New Wave, you yeah. know, which, which should have been the thing. Pop. Yeah, which should have been the thing that you know to, that took off. But also too, imagine being in a band at the time and looking like those guys did. And 
you know, and having to compete with that. That would have been so hard to do, but somehow they, 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 they shown through, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's interesting. I mean, there's some lines here when he says, uh, Hey man, look at me. I'm screaming. Are you watching me bleed? Are you believing? I think Nikki's always had uh, this fascination with, the whole kayfabe of rock and roll, you know, the whole, like the difference between perception and reality of rock and roll, right? You know, like kayfabe mm. means like when the wrestlers are uh, in their guise as, as their characters, you know? And this is a theme that he'll go back to again with louder than hell, you know, uh, some use violence, some hang on the string of obscene, you know, some scream in horror just for the show. But it, here it is in kind of a more embryonic form. So, so that's interesting that, that, that he's got that sophisticated a theme this early on. Um, and, you know, even, even the song, the, the, the quote, it's kind of a homily, but, you know, what's right for you ain't right for everyone. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. I don't know of any other bands that are interjecting that kind of, of thought into a, a song about, you know, that's kind of machismo and macho, stick to your guns, you know, and yet is able to distance themselves from it enough to say, but that's for me, maybe not for you. Yeah. So. Right. That is a good um, point. Okay. So now we move on to the album. They go in the studio um, about six months after they've been playing out shows and they go into Hit City West. They start recording. Mick Mars doesn't like the engineer. They fire him. They call in Michael Wagner, who ex-member of Accept, one of the premier engineers in hard rock and heavy metal. If you wanted to make a great sounding hard rock album today, you really couldn't do much better than to hire Michael Wagner. So in some ways, this is a demo. It's super fast recorded. It's done in like four days. They do all the mixes in about four days after that, which just by rule of thumb back then, you know, if they had had the time and money, they should have been spending at least a day per song on mixing this thing, if not more, but they don't. Um, so they put this thing out independently. It sells 10 to 20,000 copies, depending on, you know, what source you believe. Um, <clears throat> but it's enough. They're, they're headlining 3,000 seaters in Santa Monica. They're selling out the whiskey in multiple nights. They get a record deal from Electra. Electra says, we want to uh, remix, re-record partially and remix this album. And we're going to have uh, Gordon four dice uh do the remixes under the watchful eye of roy thomas baker which is incredible because roy thomas baker obviously the producer for queen you know is behind some of the best sounding rock records of all time so you know if ever you wanted a better guy to have his ears in the room to make your four-day demo essentially sound like a professional rock album this is the guy you want right i mean you you can't beat that and yet listening to the electra version versus the uh original leather, leather yeah. records version there's always going to be a few things that are lost in the translation there's always going to be a few little nuances that you, you hear and you go ah 
you know, I kind of miss that aspect that they that they lost there. So, uh, any general thoughts about about that, Dave? You know, I, I kind of compare this to, you know, Kiss's demos. I know this is not the Kiss podcast at this point, but when you listen to those initial demos, even what they did that would end up coming out in the box set. Um, there's just a certain thing, a certain magic that comes through those demos that you don't, it didn't necessarily translate to um, that fully produced record. And I think this is kind of the same thing. I personally prefer the leather mix because I, I just do think there's a young band, a young hungry band in there that is pushed for time. And they're, they're obviously pretty well rehearsed at this point. And you, know, you basically get a, a, a live show, for lack of better way to put it, because they didn't have time to sit there and, and, and track and overdub and, and spend, you know, two or three weeks, you know, doing it that way because they didn't have the money. So there's this energy that came through in that original mix that I think is lost just a little bit on the official Electra version. But I do like the Electra version too. There's a lot to be said that's positive about that as well. And Mike, you're, you have all the different versions. What are your thoughts? Um, my thoughts are too, it, it, this clearly establishes the fact that they've got a killer rhythm section. I mean, you can put this rhythm section in any other band. Like if you like put this rhythm section in like the cult, that'd be a better band. You know, <laughs> it, 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 sure. they're, they're just amazing. And, and Nicky never gets the credit as a bass player that he should. And Tommy never gets the credit as a drummer as he should. But like those guys sound like those guys. And that's a good thing. And everybody should embrace that because I mean, Tommy's got the four on the floor, uh, you know, bass drum thing happening all the time. And Nikki's like in the pocket playing, like, you could not have a better, you know, foundation for a guitar player like Mick, who is so established in the blues and, and established in like metal at the same time, too. But like, he's got a, you know, a perspective on that, too. But like, he doesn't sound like anybody else. So, no wonder why the, the fact that these four guys got together and recorded this album and, and they were as successful as they were. That they, that they achieved what they did, you know? And to me, this is, you know, the starting point for that, you know? You got a great rhythm section, you know, and also Mick is incorporating like things like harmonics, like, you know, Van Halen would do. And he's it, it's, it's like yeah. bridging gaps in a way. Like he was obviously clearly blues influence, but like pulling in things like, you know, blues influence and Van Halen, you know, harmonics and stuff. And it's great. But, you know, to, to David's point about, you know, you know the, the Leather Records version, there are things that are missing you know, on the electric version. It's like the Leslie guitar in the, in the breakdown that's not there on the electric version. And, you know, there's also the thing about, you know, the cowbell sounds like, it sounds like that, that cowbell is literally hanging from a cow. It's, <laughs> it's not the coolest cowbell sound yeah. of all times, but, but it sounds like, you know, this record. So, you know, good for those guys, you know? And I think there's also some like Rockman stuff, you know, Tom Scholl's kind of stuff that's going on in the outro too that wasn't on the electric version, which to this point might have been dated in a way. So maybe... From the perspective of Electra said, you know, maybe we need we don't need this Rockman sound in this record, and we can pull that out. You know, debatable either way. But the takeaway is, it's a great song. Yeah. Regardless of the mix, yeah. It's funny that you talk about Nikki and Tommy together. Nikki is not a flashy bass player. No. By any stretch of the imagination, he is just a straight eight you know, stay inside the beat, you know what I mean, to tie to tie everything together. He doesn't, you know. Although he does he does more playing on the on this first single and on this album yeah. until maybe Dr. Feelgood. He does a couple walking ones and I call it the Nikki signature move, which is the root fifth do 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 you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah the climb. That's, he does that all over this album and that's his sound or whatever. 
Yeah. I mean, I think you hit on a key point, uh, Mike, which is this is a band of stylists, you know, yeah. uh, you know, Tommy Lee with his his double bass and his intricate, you know, tasty hi-hat and fill work and, you know, all, all of that stuff. Nobody sounds like Tommy Lee. Mm. Nobody sounds like Vince vocally. Nobody sounds like Mick on guitar. And, you know, maybe Nikki Six's bass playing is fairly nondescript, but as a songwriter and as a lyricist, nobody is writing stuff on his level. No. No, it's 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 like it's like the perfect storm or the perfect stew in a way. Like you know, you can't you couldn't put together four more guys that would become Motley Crue. All of these guys could do that. Yeah, and and, and thank God we have that. You know. Yeah, I mean, I I put together just a partial list of you know listening to the album. I hear bits of Aerosmith, Alice Cooper, Bowie, Slade. I hear a lot of cheap trick. Cheap trick. The sweet. Queen, AC, Man, stars, AC. stars too, stars, stars, yeah, Sex Pistols, um, Mott the Hoople, you know. I mean, yeah. even mm -hmm. even just in general talking about the album, there's you know almost kind of some proto-industrial kind of thing. The way that that mm -hmm. band will hang on to a riff and just keep repeating it, and then Nikki will vary it by going to different roots on the bass or different notes on the bass not necessarily the root you know i mean that's something that other bands weren't necessarily doing at the time either yeah it's almost like the the blueprint of what metal should have been in terms of american metal but right but very consciously i think everything about this band and this album is calculated to impact you as directly and immediately as possible, right? They definitely wanted to separate themselves. This is not your older brother or your father's hard rock or heavy metal band, right? So there's, no. it's not a two guitar band. There's one guitar happening. It's, you know, the songs are a little bit faster than, you know, than say like Kiss is playing at the time. Um, it's, it's, you know, we talked about Tommy Lee. The average Motley Crue beat is kick snare. Right. Versus kisses, kick, snare, kick, kick, snare. Right. It's just it's that immediacy. It's that acknowledgement of our audience has a limited attention span. So we are going to grab them by the throat as quickly as possible in yeah. every single way. You know, and you can see that in terms of like the syrupy, sickly, sweet melodies that uh, that Vince mm -hmm. sings, you know, and just it's Everything about this album is calculated to have an immediate effect, I think. Yeah. Agreed. It's, well, I mean, we got to start talking about the songs, but yeah, and I, I could, this would segue into Livewire. Livewire is a punk song with better playing. You know what I mean? With yeah. a little bit, and with the whole, um, Livewire is a song that I could see, um, you know, the Ramones or the Germs or somebody like that, even, I mean, even the core hot, young, running free a little bit better than I used to be. That's a very early punk sort of like F you kind of line to say, you know what I mean? And, um, <clears throat> you know, what's wild in the streets by the circle jerks or whatever, even, you know what I mean? But it's, they're all just, but they're much more finely tuned musicians than that kind of late seventies, early eighties punk. You know what I mean? So they're influenced by it. They have the speed, they have the energy, they have the like in your face attitude, but they also have Mick Mars who can pull off that in Livewire, that, that uh, uh, 
that harmonic thing that he does that I listen to that over and over again. And I'm like, how does he do it that fast? You know, yeah. I mean, they're just really, you know, great musicians who are um, influenced. And, and again, punk is also influenced by, you know, 60s pop and garage rock and things like that. So it's, it's the fine American, you know, family tree of three minute songs. You know what I mean? This is, we're going to, give it to you and this is what you get you know what i mean and so that's that's my take on it um it's just it's really just good pop songs with technically proficient players um who are also completely hyped up because they're 22 you know right and tommy what Lee was tommy like, Lee, like 17 or i think it, yeah on that first single but um yeah. dave your thoughts about livewire you know it's a great album opener for sure um it's a great set opener but yeah, to, to, to John's point, you know, I spent a lot of time, as you know, in the UK, and, and, and I hear all those influences. I could very, very easily go into any of those clubs or pubs in the UK, and I've been in a lot, and I could see Motley Crue coming out of any of those places and being a very valid export from the UK. They have a lot of those punk influences that are there, and, and the Bowies, and all the other bands you've mentioned. You know, they, they are as a seated in the UK and that, that, all that music as they are anything American. In fact, I would actually, if I was going to put everything in a blender, I think they would probably come out more on the UK side of the equation than the mm, United States. Um, but there is a very, very punk element to that, that song and that first album that definitely comes through. And, uh, you know, I, I take my hat off to them because not a lot of people can write a song like Livewire. Um, and it, and, and it's, Again, it's those young kids who are 22 years old for the most part. Well done. It's, yeah, it's the best. It's one of the best rock anthems ever written in the history of rock anthems. And I, you know what I mean? You can play it at my funeral, you know, but it's like, I mean, I'm serious. It's like one of those songs that literally every time I hear it, I get chills down my spine, you know, because it's that. Yeah, you know, we, we've talked about it before and it, it comes down to, you know, just a basic thing with songwriting is, you know, guys like us will, you know, at our age, chase that in our entire life, trying to write a song, just one For song. Sure. Like yeah. And here these guys are, they're 21, 22 years old, and they checked that box, and they checked it with a big, bold strike. Outstanding. Mike, your thoughts about Livewire? I'll just say this. I'll, I'll go deep with this. I mean, if you look at the clips of uh, Mick Morris playing in his band, I think they, they were called White Horse, right? Yeah. You know, and they had, you know, the original, you know, rotating drum kit, you know, they played like in Huntington Beach. They did, which is really funny. You can right? find the video on YouTube. Yeah. You've got to check it out. But you know, apparently like either like Vince Neil or Tommy Lee was there at the gig and they might've seen the show and maybe there was a connection that that happened. But like, this is what the origins of, of, of Motley Crue. And again, I go back to the point of, you can only sound like Motley Crue if you had these four guys in the band, you know? I mean, Mick Mars, for those of you that, you know, my first experience seeing Mick Mars play or Motley Crue play was Theater of Pain. And also, you know, Girls, 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 Girls and um, uh, Dr. Feelgood. But like every time I saw those guys play, I thought, oh my God, it's so loud and it's so guitar driven. It was badass, you know? And then couple that with a great rhythm section, you know, Tommy Lee and, and, and you know, Nikki Six. I mean, it was amazing what they could do. But they're basically like a trio with a singer. And how do you sound that big? Yeah. As a trio with a singer, you know, my God. And like, you get that straight away from the, the put the needle on the wax in this record, man. And a good friend for doing that. Yeah. And to this day, it is not easy to play that opening riff 
in all downstrokes <clears throat> with the kind of precision that Mick Mars plays it. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I assume that it has a lot to do with how he probably had that. Well, I, I don't know. I, 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 this is one of the questions that I sort of have about the writing of these songs, um, because the the original, the would that be something written by Nikki Six or would that be something written by McMars? It was Nikki Six wrote the song, right? He wrote that like that rhythm that do 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 you know what I mean? And then Mick Mars played on top of that, or was it like did he have more of a simple rhythm to it that then Mick Mars built that huge sound to? Because I mean nobody's pulling that riff out of their ass. Right, right. That's what Mick Mars does. He's not he's that sounds something like he worked on his whole life. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if Mick is responsible for the riff either. I mean, Nikki has sole songwriting credit on that, but, um, you know. He does, yeah. Yeah, I mean. Okay, right. That's why I noticed that. But then there's parts of it where, you know, like if Nikki has full songwriting credits, I mean, that song is that guitar riff. And yet, well, that and the cowbell and then the chorus, which definitely, you know what I mean? basically solidifies it as a song but that riff you know i never understand songwriting credits every time i well, go over yeah i agree you know it's credits are or one thing let's get into this okay so if let's say nikki has sole songwriting credit for the, you know for the song but he was he's the guy playing you know with the rhythm section on this song right but the driving force is the guitar yeah right right so do you write both those parts no, like the assumption know. would be that Mick Mars plays over top of it. That's that's the whole thing that I've gotten into. Yeah. Performance credit, you know what I mean? Like I've written every bass play, every bass line to every Little Wretches song. And I would argue in several of those songs, I'm, I'm helping that song be great. But when it comes down to it, I'm getting micro cents on the dollar to the person that, you know what I mean? To Robert who wrote the, you know, yeah. put the six chords together. You know what I mean? John, that's a that's a fair perspective because that's just Dave and I were talking earlier today, and, and we'll get into this at another time, another place, appropriate. But just perspective again is that you know, I, I, on the albums I've done, I've always looked at songwriting as a total group effort. Everybody yeah. gets mm -hmm. equal credit for it. But you're absolutely right. You know, I might come in with a guitar part, even a harmony, melody, maybe the lyrics, but the bass player is going to bring in his mm -hmm. own thing. The drummer is going to bring right. their own thing to the table. Whoever else is in the band, I just think it's all of that is an equal part to me. And that's the way I've always approached songwriting. But a guy like Nikki Six, let's be blunt. He's a very, very, very mm -hmm. smart man. He was a very, very wise young man, very streetwise young man. And it wouldn't surprise me if he knew ahead of time hey, just how valuable publishing was going to be. Mm -hmm. um, and he kind of looked at, he walked down that path that way. Hey, I wrote this like kind of like Mick Jones yeah. from Foreigner. Was mm -hmm. kind of like yeah. that too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's didn't share very there's much. hundreds of stories about that. Okay. Yeah, about the songwriter. Yeah, and that could very well be the case. You know, um, you know, Mick could have very well written this riff and just not gotten credit for it, which would be my inclination to believe that happened. So, so getting back to the song, <laughs> Livewire, okay. um, <laughs> you know, uh, I think I mean a few comments about the lyrics. You know, I mean, there's there's a really clever play on words there between "I'm alive." a live wire right which which is so like mm -hmm. simple that you you almost miss it if you don't think about it and you know i think john you're totally right that the key uh lyric is because i'm hot young running free a little bit better than i used to be it's that combination of 
braggadocio on one hand saying, yeah, I'm the man, take my fist, break down walls, mixed with this like unexpected humbleness, this realistic down to earth view of yourself that says, okay, maybe I'm not great yet, but you know what? I'm getting better bit by bit. And that to me is that that little bit of vulnerability is what makes this song a timeless classic, really. Um, yeah. So right, it's it's a song that even if it is bragging, we've gone over this before. A lot of these songs I would laugh at because I would be like, I am not beating women off with a stick. I do not, you know what I mean? Like these songs about how sexy I am and how bad you want me and get on your knees, baby, and all that kind of stuff. I just kind of looked at that and I was like, that ain't happening for me. So I don't, I don't get it. But Livewire, that hot, young, running free, I can relate to that, even though I was never really hot or young. I mean, I was always, I mean, I was young when I heard it, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's, yeah. I'm young now, man, yeah. and I'm hot. Yeah. <laughs> but that song always spoke to me, like, always. Like, even now I listen to it, and I'm like, yeah. Like, I made Jack listen to it. It's like, you got to listen to this song right now. Right. This is the best song ever. <laughs> and what did Jack say? He liked it. Yeah, okay. I mean, he well, he might have just said he liked it because he wanted me to go away. <laughs> okay, <laughs> now there's another line we need to talk about in this song, okay, which is, I, I think, okay. probably the least defensible line that Motley Crue has ever written in their career. I'll either break her face or take down her legs, okay? Which, I got to say, even in 1983, three when I or 84 when I first heard this album I was not cool with this as a line you know I mean obviously and I'm sure you guys have thought about this too if anybody that we knew on a personal level was bragging to us about breaking a woman's face that would not be anybody that we would want to have anything to do with you know and, and there's there is a kind of ugly level of misogyny in that line that yeah. is pretty just indefensible. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to see how other people who have covered the song have dealt with that line. Uh, the country guys, I think, tend to go, I'll either break his face or take down her legs. You know, I've heard women sing it where they just change the gender and they say, I'll either break his face or take down his legs. Um, you know, obviously both Vince and Tommy have gotten in trouble with the law for violence towards women at various times. I know Mick has talked yeah. about being in a relationship where he was the, you know, the abu physically abused one. To my knowledge, Nikki has never, you know, actually been um, you know, accused of of physical violence towards women. That is a, that is a good point, and that is something that I've pretty much kind of ignored. Um, you know what I mean? I've sort of fluffed it off and said, "Oh, whatever." He's just playing a character. But yeah, that's interesting. That you, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, no, it's not interesting. It's a it's a dangerous line, and you're right. I I do kind of ignore it. But it could also be not like a first person thing. Maybe he saw somebody else that you know was behaving that way, and he decided to write about that, right? Yeah, but he's writing from the first person perspective. Yeah, if he's saying I'm hot, young, or I'm alive, he's talking about himself. I guess. Now, yeah. And we assume that this is Nikki who's writing these lines, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. 
he could be speaking metaphorically some way, but there's really no way to defend this. And, and, and it's dumb for us to even try to. Yeah, but either way, like this is like the first song on their first record. And it's that this is, it's that in depth. <laughs> for God's sakes, this is a great debut, you know? Jeez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even, you know, the yeah. next line, which kind of gets overshadowed, or I'll take down her legs. That's not a common phrase. And yet no. we all know what he means, which is the mark of a great writer to be able to create a word picture that other people don't put together and don't think about, and yet is clear to understand. And I think it's because Nikki takes his, you know, these sort of vivid word imagery from guys like William S. Burroughs and Raoul Dahl yeah. and a bunch of like, you know, beat poets and things like that, which are, you know, he's drawing from a much deeper well um, Oscar Wilde, you know, and his Bon Mots and stuff, which is why he's such a superior lyricist because he's he's able to dig that much deeper and his influences are that much more varied. Yeah, okay. Come on and dance. Uh, the one thing I never did this week that I wanted to do that I never got around to was looking up uh, Sandra D again because I realized... I sort of only have a vague understanding of who Sandra D is based on seeing the movie Grease when I was in first grade. Um, so, so Sandra D was a kind of Marilyn Monroe-esque um, actress model from the 50s and 60s, but she was kind of a good girl. She was the, the first Gidget uh, in a movie. That's right, um, okay. But behind the scenes, she was a sexual abuse survivor. She was an anorexic depressive and an alcoholic. So, again, no coincidence that this is who Nikki name checks, because, it, you know, right. Motley Crue is all about that difference between perception and reality behind the scenes. Right. Okay, well, then that, yeah, that actually makes the song a lot darker, because it's, you know, come on and dance. Let's, uh, let's forget your problems that are going on. Um, and you can, you know what I mean? You can... Like I'm this complete wreck of a person. I'm like Sandra D or you are, uh, and we can escape that uh, from this moment. Again, also, um, because that's why I thought there was something dark about it, about Sandy, Sandra D. Um, the, um, again, that killer chunky guitar part that Mick Mars puts on it and a reappearance of the cowbell, of course, makes it, you know, a, a really good song. Not my favorite on the album, obviously, but it, it's a nice second song to Livewire. Um, but it definitely has more of a lyrical um, bent to it, you know what I mean, than I, and than I even realized. Uh, Dave? Well, I just learned something. I'm about to go back and listen to it through that, that lens. Um, Definitely interesting, right? Very, very cool. Um, I'm intrigued. I need to listen to it one more time. But, you know, I like the song. It's not one of my favorite songs on the record. Um, but I, I, I think it's a catchy song. It's cool. Again, it's that band trying to you know, find it in their way in their songwriting. And um, I, I like it. You know, I, I've, got no, I've got nothing, nothing, no bad critique of this song whatsoever. It's very poppy. It's very British pop. Yes. Yeah. Almost, almost power pop. You know, but you know, power, yes, power pop. But to add more to that, I, I can't add this part because I think one of you said it before. The the Alice Cooper influence on this band, particularly on this record, you know, there are elements of Alice Cooper on this record, whether it's Mick Mars playing in some in some places that that are reminiscence of the original Alice Cooper band, 
But you know, when you look at the way Alice Cooper wrote his lyrics, especially when he did the first solo album that he did, um, which was uh, Welcome to My Nightmare. There are some very, you know, fun quote unquote songs on that record, right? That are very misleading. When you, until you listen to the lyrics, there's a secondary meaning behind a lot of those lyrics, which are very, very dark. Um, and this is another, this is a pretty good example of that. And I just wonder how much of that type of influence that, that, that Nikki brought to his writing at this point in time with Motley Crue. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, I'll just say that, you know, it, it shows that, you know, whoever presents the idea to the song or, you know, whoever's like the creative spark, you know, it, it, it's, it's about the band to be able to execute that, you know, and they, they do that on the song, you know, they really do, you know, and, and that, no wonder why they sound like Motley Crue when they play like Motley Crue, because that's, that's their heart and, and soul is on those on, in their playing and that works. And nobody else sounds like those guys, you know? Yeah. I mean, the thing that strikes me about this song, this album in general, is how almost prophetic it is. Like, the seeds of everything that Motley Crue would become, almost everything that would happen to them throughout their whole career, are all touched on here, you know? I mean, this is the whole relationship between band and dancers, that symbiotic relationship that they get into more with girls, 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 and things like that. But they're, they're already talking about it here you know and and nikki's doing these great vivid word things you know custom pink you know just these these quick stab phrases that put these mental images in your head even if it's a little vague as to what he's talking about um dave and i were texting each other earlier today trying to figure out exactly what uh in a pepsi sheen means you know, I mean, things that are sheen, like satin is sheen. It kind of has a reflexive glow to it or a model's well-conditioned hair. I myself envision those like tube tops they had in the 80s with like a Pepsi corporate logo on it. Um, you know you know what I'm talking about, those form-fitting tube top things. Um, just, be yep. just because, you know, this isn't the first time that Nikki will sort of name check uh, a giant corporation that is synonymous with America. When he, you know, if you look forward to Girls, 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 he talks about we're innocent in every way, like apple pie and Chevrolet, you know? <laughs> so yeah. even back then there's this this idea of almost like an Andy Warhol take on the, the nature of Americana, if you will. So. Next song, a song that he co-wrote with Lizzie Gray that he had back from his London days, I think. And I think Lizzie Gray actually covered this on Spiders and Snakes. Mm -hmm. um, Public Enemy number one. John? I, I liked it. I'm trying to write. I didn't write down the chorus. I remember liking the chorus. What's the... Um... Uh... I'm public enemy number one. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there was something else in it. When you're under the gun, oh, I'm having that fun. Thing. When you're young, you're so young. Yeah, yeah, when yeah. You're young. That's that's uh, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of cool. And then the uh, the chorus is pretty good. At, although the song feels a little un because of the um, maybe you can do this better than I can in terms of lyrics because I wasn't paying that much attention. Um, it's it switches from like a relationship song to like a, now we're having, we're, you know, on a crime spree. You know what I mean? We're public enemy number one. And, it, and who is he public enemy number one to, you know, like the establishment, like the girl's parents, the, you know what I mean? Like I was really kind of, 
trying to solve what the song was. So that sort of left it uh, a little unfinished for me. And I don't think I didn't go back to it. You know what I mean? And sort of try and figure that out. Well, I think, it, you know, it's just sort of talking about when you're young and you're out and you're mm-hmm. being reckless and misbehaving and people are messing, you know, I mean, you know, like when we were out at Mount Washington in high school and, you know, hanging out and those cops came up to us and they said, hey, guys, why don't you move along? You know, <laughs> you know we weren't doing anything, yeah. but OK, yeah. you know, sure, sir, we'll do that. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, no, okay, I see what you mean, okay. When you're young, yeah, okay. Yeah, that is a good point. So yeah, so being a young, you know, young person is a crime in itself. So I guess that's how I would interpret This is Bonnie and Clyde in a rock song. You know, that's, this is what it reminds me of, you know, just, just the lyric from a lyric perspective, you know, young, two young people, um, a little out of control, uh, definitely living in the moment, definitely living on the edge. Um, but I like this song too. I mean, I love, the, I love the chorus. I think the song's a little unfinished in some ways to me. Um, but again, this is a band at the beginning of their songwriting. Um, and I, I d- definitely think this is one of those songs that became a template, if you would, a foundation for what they would become on future records. But it's one of my favorite songs on the record. Um, even though I do feel, like I said, lyrically it feels a little unfinished to me, but I get that young rebel perspective as well. You know, because I was right there with you, too. I remember as a kid walking down the street, I had long hair. I used to get stopped and messed with all the time because I was a kid walking down the street with long hair. I guess I guess that's the crime of being a, a rebel, right? Or the perspective of being a rebel. So maybe it's his response to what he perceives the authority is like in his life. Uh, Mike? Yeah, I'll just say again, this reminds me of uh, stars in a way, like almost like Detroit Girls in a way. There's a lot of, you know, mm. there's that groove that's happening also to like you know, your make is playing you know melodies over the chords and, and it works for sure uh, but also too like there's a lot of just descending bass lines that are very kiss like that works for the song and but also too there's it seems like there's a lot of um overdub guitar you know it sounds like randy rhodes you know in a way you know mm-hmm. which i think comes okay. through in this record in a weird way because it, those records kind of came up in the same era but Maybe was that mixed approach? I don't know, but either way. But well, some of his some of his guitar solos do feel kind of like mini instrumental compositions, a la the way really that do. Randy's do sometimes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But also, I think you know the hook of you know Public Enemy Number One. Oh yeah, that's a great hook. It's a killer hook. It is, <laughs> and it was a great hook when Alice Cooper did it on Public Animal Number Nine on um, yeah, the School's Out album, which I think this song owes a little bit to uh, musically. But you know, yeah, yeah. Um, also interesting, I think you know, right off the bat, we have the lyric about tragedy, running the red light, hear the screams, another one dies tonight. I mean, especially yeah. what with what happens to Vince and you know, the tragedy of the the auto accident that he's involved in um you know the the fact that this lyric is here is it kind of takes on uh another meaning too but i think dave you hit on the the main point which is that you know nikki's commenting if life is that random and that fragile and that easy to lose then the only solution to life is to live in the moment right and to try not to think about that don't think about nothing yeah merry-go-round 
that's it's funny because this is this was the deep song on the album i remember hearing when i was 13 or 14 you know what i mean or i guess what 82 12 13 at any rate um so it's funny to listen to it now um because it's sort of you know about it's about life going around and around you know what i mean and how you you know and, and sort of the the problems of um you know, things going wrong or the sameness of life sometimes. Well, um, well so you gotta... lyrically, it's a little vague. Yeah, it is. But I mean, I remember thinking like, um, I liked it. I remember comparing this because, of course, I had heard this after um, Rat had come out because my, I mean, getting these albums was you got Shout at the Devil first. Then you were like, oh, they have another record. Right. And then you realize that, that that was how you heard this. So I remember comparing this to Round and Round by Rat. Um, and still not even, you know what I mean? The lyrics in Round and Round by Rat are kind of vague too. So I don't know. I, I like it, you know, again, um, it's sort of ballad-esque. Yeah. But uh, I like the build in it, you know what I mean? Where it goes into the, you know, the heavier chorus. So, so Nikki has said in interviews that this is about a guy that he knew um, that he lived in an apartment complex with, and there was like a small little children's playground, I guess it was part of the apartment complex that had a, a merry-go-round. And this guy had like four kids and uh, a lot of pressure in his life and, you know, wasn't getting along with his wife. And he just cracked one day and like literally just reverted mm -hmm. to being a child and was playing on the merry-go-round. And one day, you know, the guys in white suits came and literally took them away to the mental asylum, mm. you know. And wow. and I think Nikki has a history of mental illness in his family. His sister, I believe, was committed uh, to an asylum. And, uh, you know, and so when I hear it, when he, when he talks about, am I going down, am I going down now? To me, it's like him mm. checking himself, like, am I losing my mind? Mm. Am I crazy? Is this going to happen to me too? that kind of insecurity because I, you know, I think there's a, there's a big correlation between mental illness and creativity. There's been all kinds of, of studies that have shown that creative people are essentially people that, you know, are functionally able to, you know, deal with a minor bit of mental illness and yet kind of um, take that and use that in a constructive way that doesn't destroy their lives. Right. You know, all artists are a little touched in the head. You, Mr. Carson, are a little touched in the head. That's, that's what a teacher told me once. <laughs> was or, or, you know, a little ADD, a little ADHD. Sure. Yeah. But, but Dave, to your point, again, talking about an earlier influence, um, is David Bowie. And if you know anything about David Bowie, as I do, I'm a fan. Um, certainly my wife is a huge fan, so I know a lot about David Bowie is he was worried about the same thing. He had mental Ill illness in his family. Um, and that was kind of a long kept family secret, but David Bowie wrote a lot about his secret fears of losing mm -hmm. his mind uh, and falling into the darkness that is, you know, a, a mental illness, a, a significant mental illness. And it's also with the, with the Alice Cooper, you know, the tip of the hat, the Alice Cooper influences Ballad Dwight Fry. And uh, so I hear a little bit of that in there too. I hear a little bit of that influence and, and, and I love both of those. So, you know, this song might not be my favorite song on the record, but I definitely get the, the influence from, from both of them, um, those places. So I, I definitely think this is one of my favorite songs on the record for sure. Not the strongest song on the record, but one of my favorite. Mike? 
Yeah, I agree with David. It's, it's not the strongest song on the record, but at the same time, too, it's it's derivative of their, their influences. I hear like a lot of Elton John mm. and also hear a lot of things like that they would use on Home Sweet Home later. Yeah. In terms of code structure, you know, yes. um, I also I, I personally prefer the, the the acoustic guitar that's on the uh, the uh, the leather records mix. It's, I think to me it sounds better. Yeah, yeah. I mean the the decision that's one of the big prime differences is on the leather records mix. There's that clean guitar, and and the yeah. the electric guitar almost sounds superfluous until they get to the chorus. You almost wish if they had to drop one of those guitars, they had kept the acoustic. I agree. Yeah. In terms of influences, like the the chorus is definitely like a Zeppelin influence, like Baby Will Leave You in a way, right? You can hear that kind of descending thing, right? It works, but I mean, still, like it's 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 a genuine song, and you could tell that you know, I mean, my God, man, these guys, if this is their debut record, <laughs> and this is as strong as they can come across, I mean, man, you know, no wonder this is a blueprint for like what would have become from other bands of that era you know yeah yeah there's something about that chorus too the way that the the guitar interplays with vince's melody and it and how it builds and it kind of goes in a circular way and comes back in on itself that's just like i I, there's something so intense about that like um i have a, a vivid memory of when they played this song live at the stanley theater and they had like the disco ball going and like this song just like filled up the room in such a such a massive massive way that like i'll uh, you know i'll always remember when they played it and this is opening they were they open to uh ozzy no they didn't play it when they opened for ozzy they but they did play okay. it when they came back and headlined uh, the theater oh okay all right yeah so next up take me to the top john i like it um another nice play on the idea of like you know we're gonna go as far as we can but then you're gonna throw me off like nothing's for sure um, again, got it, the, the chorus is super catchy. And again, that Mick Mars crunchy guitar in there sells it for me. I, I know I'm sort of saying the same stuff, but they're all, it's a good, solid, almost pop song uh, that's written. Um, and, I, you know, it totally works for me. It's one of my, it's, you know, it's like one of the three or four songs that I really like on the album. Dave? My favorite song on the album, Far and Away. And I think it's, 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 it comes from my experience of seeing them as a young band at that time. You know, I had the privilege of seeing them open for Kiss on the Creatures Tour at the 11 oh, wow. Theater here in Las Vegas. And I saw them, and yeah, it was a, a, amazing. And I saw them as well on the, uh, at the US Festival. Oh, no way. And um, yeah, so, you know, um, as, a, as, as somebody who had not really known who Motley Crue was yet, as far as a, a buying their albums, um, I was one of those people that came on about the time that Shout the Devil obviously was coming out. But I remember that song being a standout to me when I saw them, kind of like yeah. when I saw Cheap Trick. You know, it's just one of those songs that they had that was ear candy that I immediately, you know, I immediately was attracted to. Um, and it, it hit me in my gut. It was a song that you felt like you could sing along to. Very powerful, very simple. Yeah, the fill that starts the chorus is really cool too. Yeah, yeah. it's awesome. Yeah, it's effective, right? It's effective. But look at look at that blueprint of that the blueprint of that song and how many bands of that era, of the LA era, that really used this album and this song as a template for what they did. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, and it was obvious to me why, even then, it was obvious to me why, because this song just kicks ass. 
bluntly. Yeah. So uh, it will always be one of my favorite Motley Crue songs, and I would argue it might be my favorite Motley Crue song. Okay. Cool. Uh, Mike? I'll just say it's, it's obviously, you know, if you want to look at, you know, prime example of early Motley Crue and, and the blueprint of what they were going to do further on, this is, you, you cannot find a better example of a great song those guys yeah i mean i i can't think of the song without thinking of seeing them for the very first time and doing the choreography with vince yeah. and nikki and and mick where they're all pantomiming yeah. machine gunning the audience back and forth during the uh like that harmonic straight eight thing that they're playing there you know lyrically the song is interesting for for a few different reasons i think the fact that you know that, that separates a band like this from kiss is yes kiss would sing about being successful and you know being all that you can be but it was they would not necessarily sing about the seeds of your own self-destruction uh being a part of an, an inherent part of your meteoric rise to the top right and you know nikki had that perspective even before it happened for them which is interesting um you know and i also think that that you know much like kickstart your heart a lot of the song is talking about being an adrenaline junkie mm. when he talks about uh you know in a in a back alley fight you know and all all this kind of stuff now of course myself i was never a fighter but i had a few friends that were and i know from talking mm. to them that that was their <laughs> attitude was like they enjoyed fighting because of the of the adrenaline rush that it gave them mm. right now that's you know like again the seeds of that that he would later elaborate on kickstart my heart are there I'm not sure what he's talking about when he talks about victim accusation. It's no realization. Um, you know, I never had a way with you, but I still hear you saying, take me to the top. It's almost like he's talking about being falsely accused of doing something, you know, and then, but in his mind, he never did anything with this person. But at the very least, it's interesting that he's not bragging in this song about betting this woman or all the women that he's betted. He's talking about the fact that actually nothing happened between himself and this person. Right. Yeah, there's a, that separation in a way. Yeah. Okay, I can take that. I, I took it more largely as being the, the state of being in a band, you know what I mean, and, and trying to succeed. And then, you, I mean, you summed it up, the idea of we're going to make it to the top and then we're going to ruin ourselves. Yeah. Just like every great rock star does. Right. Yeah. Nikki is clearly still romantically enamored with the whole idea of self-destruction as well. Um, well, it's better to burn out than yeah. to fade away. Yeah. yeah. Until you, uh, until you fade away, yeah. you know, until you burn out. Um, yeah. so, so then piece of your action. Uh, I really like the chorus. I mean, it's, there's nothing, you know, um, Nothing that super stands out to me. Again, it's a great song, but again, there's in such a long line of great songs in this album, it doesn't, um, you know, I like it, but I got nothing really, anything special to say about it. I 100% echo what Brother John just said. Okay. Mike. Yeah, I think the verse is, you know, killer rhythm section, Motley Crue, it's killer. It's badass. Uh, the slide guitar is, you know, amazing. And, and the breakdown is a great riff as well. And the fact that like, it's one guitar player in this band, making that much noise. <laughs> freaking amazing, you know? But also too, from a you know, production perspective, I hear a lot of, um, I hear like a lot of production value from like what, what uh, 
Ozzy was doing with Randy Rhodes. There's a lot of double track guitar. Yeah. You know, and I hear that, but also too, like Randy doesn't sound like you know Mick, and Mick doesn't sound like Randy. You know, and maybe that's a good thing. You know, Mick is more of like a blues-based guitar player, whereas Randy's like a classically trained guitar player. But like I hear production values somehow, you know, interweaving with in between those two artists, if you will, you know. Yeah, well, they were contemporaries. I mean, Nikki yeah. Six talks about hanging out with Randy and going over to his house and listening to music and stuff. So, I mean, I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me that Randy, I mean, Randy couldn't really help but be an influence on everybody that he touched. Yeah. And he was certainly in touch with those guys. Yeah. Lyrically, it's it's somewhat the generic sex song for these guys, but it, it's effective. I mean, the lines use you up, throw you away. Again, there's a little bit of that misogyny there, but it's 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 kind of clever in the way that that they're doing it. You know, there's musical ideas here. It's that one-two punch that that he uses several different times in this album, where he establishes the riff and does the counter riff, and it's in the dun 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 dun, you know, right? And like again and again, that was something that just became a de rigueur part of '80s Sunset Strip heavy metal the instrumental section of this song is 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 very cool too again i think this is um they wouldn't do a song like this later on that had this extended an instrumental section but at this time it was embryonic and they were still kind of figuring out how to kludge it together so starry eyes it's a good song it's a good ballad i would almost go so far as to say it is a quote power ballad or at least the the blueprint for sort of a power, a power ballad, not particularly cliched, but still kind of cliched. You know what I mean? I mean, at least the, the word starry eyes is sort of something you don't hear a lot of times in songs, um, but it almost comes off as if they're trying to write a love song. Um, I don't know. Like, I'm very confused, but I, I, I guess that's wrong. I, I just, I couldn't really come up with a, a, whether or not I like this song or not. It's a little sickly sweet, but at the same time, um, it's, it's uh, a little bit better than average. You know what I mean? I don't know if I'm making any sense. Sorry, just move on. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, li- I, I would like it one, one, one listening and then I'd be like, oh, this is kind of annoying, but <clears throat> I mean, I like the chorus. I like that the Motley Crue, like, you know, where it go, the the chorus always is a little bit stronger than the verse in terms, they don't speed up, but they're a little bit louder, a little bit, you know, straight ahead and then back to the verse, you know what I mean? So it's like, and they almost have, Vince has almost like a breathless approach to singing sometimes where he like almost like leads into the lyric where you can actually hear the breath coming before the actual word comes out. Mm. And I remember thinking that's kind of interesting because uh, he does that with I'm Alive in Livewire, like I'm you know what I mean? And same with sort of starry eyes, it's there. But so I don't know. I went back and forth on this song. Well, you know, this song, when it, when I first heard it, was not a favorite of mine. I, I wasn't a particular fan of not just the song, but I thought this was the weakest vocal on the album by, by, by Vance. Hmm. Um, but on a personal note, and I will say this with every amount of uh, respect that, that I, could, I can muster, but after getting to know um, Vince's son, um, I, I can tell you from an experience he shared with me that that song meant a lot to him personally as a young boy growing up. 
when his dad was on the road, he would listen to that out, that song. Mm. And that song provided him a, a tremendous amount of comfort and closeness in connection to his father. Hmm. So I listen to the song now from a different perspective, and I have a, a different appreciation for it as a father of you know of six of them. And uh, so I, I have a I have a, that song has a special place for me in my heart now because of my uh, my feelings about Vince's youngest son. Cool, Mike. Yeah, I would just say I would, I would agree. This is probably the, the strongest song on the record. I think you know what they released on, in terms of the uh, the single that was you know released. Those would have been strong contenders for this record. Um, but at the same time, too, this is uh, you know, again of the era. It sounds like it reminds me of the Runaways, mm. and it also kind of reminds me of th you know, things that you yeah. know Dokken would do as well, which they were all you know in the same you know genre in a way. So you know whether who influenced who is you know debatable either way, but. It's still a great song and it works for those guys, but it's not the strongest song in the record for sure. But I think, again, to the point of you know the single, there were strong there were stronger songs than the single that should have been on the record in my opinion, and th this could have been easily replaced by those stronger songs. Hmm. You know, I I like this song. To me, it has a certain pathos to it. There's something like you know emotional about this song, and and maybe it's it's not completely there on the page, but like. You know, when he talks about uh, when you cry now, she'll hold you like a man's supposed to be held. Not too many other heavy metal guys were singing about crying in a woman's arms at this point, right? Yeah. Um, when he breaks the fourth wall and he says, I can't get into words how it feels or get it right in this song. You know, that's interesting. That's another place, you know, breaking the fourth wall like that and being self-reflexive bands weren't doing that not in this genre yeah. you know um and you know just the, the the pathos of you know you had to let me in you needed a friend if even just for one night it's kind of poignant you know there's i'm not saying it's as strong as live wire or or you know some of the other strong songs on the song on this album but i still would miss it if it was not on the album okay I, I I can see that too, but also I, I, from the perspective of like of, you know a, a rock music fan, like you want to hear like a song that you know speaks to you more so in uh, a general way, in a way, you know. It, it, you've got, there are obviously clearly ballads on this on this record that you know that you know, that kind of shine through, but at the same time too, you want something that's gonna uplift, you know. And you know how many you know ballads can you have on a record in a way, you know? I don't know. I'll say it this way. I, I like it better than any Dawkins song. <laughs> you know what? I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, too Fast for Love. It's funny that that's the name of the album. Like a lot of people, in it, and yet for some reason, the song doesn't really stand out to me. Um, you know what I mean? It, it almost that too fast, too fast for love. It it just sounds, I don't know, it doesn't speak to me, but lyrically there's a lot of interesting stuff in there that I really liked and I'm sure you're gonna to touch on it, so I'm not gonna go over it either, but um, I, I, it's again, I expected more out of it. Like, it's funny, every time it would play, I'd be like, oh yeah, it's too fast for love. And they go, oh, this isn't the greatest. So I don't know, but again, got that chunky guitar in there. Yeah, I feel that way too. I think this is a song that I, I would have, thought would have ended up at some point in time 
on a box set as a demo that they had done that one uh, it was on release. I don't think it was the strongest. I think it probably was the weakest song on the record. And again, that's the irony of the album is named after this particular song. And I, and I wanted to give it a chance. You know, even today when I was listening to it again, like, uh, you know, I'm not really feeling it. So I actually went and watched the live version of it, which was you know, okay. But still, I felt like it just doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't come through for me. Um, I can't connect with it. But um, I can see where they're trying to go. But I just, for, for various reasons that, you know, they're just, it just, it just feels unfinished. That's the best way I can put it. Okay. Mike? Yeah, I would just say, that, you know, I mean, put yourself in, in these guys' shoes and, and playing in bands of this era and playing in those venues. And what are you going to do? Like, if I saw those guys, I would say that works. That's cool. You know, they got something, you know. Whether or not you think it's great or, you know, is it better than Elton John or, you know, whoever it is, you know, you think is, is a good songwriter, you know, those guys probably kicked ass in those days. And I was only able to see those guys on the theater pain tour and, and forward, you know, so I didn't, I didn't see those guys. I know guys that have seen them, you know, in the early days and they, have, you know, they had, you know, the, the 45s from, you know, they would throw the 45s out in the audience and stuff, you know, but I don't know what that's like, but I can, can you imagine, you know, seeing those guys in clubs? They you know, playing the song, probably kick ass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're they're so clearly hungry on this album. Yeah. Um, I, I actually like this song better than you guys do, I think. I, to me, this song is interesting because it's not Motley Crue saying, hey, everybody, we're too fast for love, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, very much like rock and roll all night isn't really about like, hey, I want to rock and roll all night. It's like, I want to be with this woman and she wants to just go out and party. And, yeah. you know, and and so this song to me is about like Nikki um, having a one night stand with an older, more experienced woman who is maybe a porn star somehow living the jet set lifestyle and he actually has some feelings for her and thinks it could be something and she is just using him for momentary pleasure right to the point where it's like she's not a generous lover she puts her leg up and calls it good love right and he's he's like saying like well hey do, do you remember you know and clearly if she remembers, she doesn't give a fuck, yeah. but he remembers. Yeah. Right. The line making love to someone else's dream is the line that really stood out to me. Yeah. Mm. So damn cool. She can turn on the night. Paul would go to right. steal that lyric for turn on the night. Much, yeah. a much right. worse song. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> so I, I like the song. I, you know, I think it shows a certain poignancy, a certain vulnerability again, that, that sets Motley Crue apart from other bands. Dave, I'm gonna, can I talk out of both sides of my mouth and backpedal? Okay, sure. <laughs> you know why? Because you know what? A point was just made that's very, that just brought me back. Very, very, very valid point. And that was, I remember who I was then as a musician and as a fan. And I'm a little bit older than you guys, just a little bit. And I remember when I did hear this album, you got to uh, hold it up against the other things that were coming out then. Def Leppard, Pyromania. Yeah. Is that not like the most produced album, you know, at that point in time? Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden comes this album. And I think, you know, to Mike's point, it's it's fair. I remember who I was then. I put that record on in a song like this. Yeah, it did appeal to me, you know, and in reflection, in hindsight. 
because it was raw. Yeah. It reminded me of the old cast, the old Aerosmith, particularly the old cast, you know, Hotter Than Hell. Mm. With, with, you know, were, those, were those albums produced like their contemporaries at the time? No, they were not. But there was a magic and an energy that was there that actually came through in spite of some of maybe not the best songwriting. And there has to be something to be said about that magic. Yeah. And there's not a lot of bands that could capture that. And and this is a good example of that. I have, I have to take back what I just said and, and go back to who I was then. And, and and the impact it did have on me was 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 like that. It was, wait a minute, this band is different. Yeah. Um, and they have an energy and a magic and a rawness to them that I'm missing in some of the other things that are coming out now. Yeah, well, you, you're allowed to change your mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just did. So there, here you go. Yeah. Again, it's an it's they're informed by punk rock. I mean, it's it's there. You know what I mean? They saw it on the Sunset Strip. It's there. They that energy, that rawness that they almost maybe they actually wanted to get rid of that rawness, but you know, it it shone through. You know. Can I also point out too that you know, it, um, in terms of the rawness, you know, there's no better example than like the first Aerosmith record. Oh like yeah, the song structures are so great, and the production is so terrible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. If any, but that album, if you listen from start to finish, it's a great record. Oh yeah, it sounds like Aerosmith. You know, and, and the guitar arrangements are badass. And same thing with this record. Like, if you remix it, would it sound better? Yes. But do you need to remix it? Probably not. I think this album has probably been remixed about as well as it can be remixed. I'm actually shocked yeah. at how good it sounds now on Apple iTunes. Like, yeah. like even Toast of, the, of Your Town, Stick to Your Guns, those songs have never sounded so good as the remasters that are on iTunes right now. Like they sound like, yeah. like they're decently recorded songs. And I know from hearing the originals, they are not that well recorded. No, and I probably they, re they recorded this record in like a week, right? Yeah, yeah, four days, depending yeah. on who you believe. Yeah. Um, we should mention the fact that on the original Leather Records version, there's a whole intro to this song that is completely yes. cut out. It's on the iTunes version. Yeah, it's on. It's there. uh, yeah, there's an alternate version with it has it, um, which I think owes a lot to uh, the Queen song Ten "Tenement Funster." You know, when you're young and you're yeah. poor and you're crazy. And Nikki Six kind of names checks Queen a little bit throughout this album with, you know, you don't have to take it like that, a sheer, sheer heart attack. <laughs> you know, uh, there's, there's a couple tips yeah. of the hat to Queen here for sure. Yeah. Um, so then the final song on the album, On With The Show. Uh, it's a it's a great, uh, great song. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, and it starts to sort of unveil where they're headed next with Shout at the Devil, it's sort of a, a lot darker about someone's suicide, but then they even play off the suicide as if it's like, this is just what happens. You know, it's like the Pete Townsend line, um, you guys all romanticize all these people that have died. Well, these people that have died are my friends, you know? And, and so it's sort of like, you know, um, they're sort of playing into that, you know, the idea that the, the lifestyle that they're choosing to live you know, it might not be suicide, but it's it's something. You know what I mean? It's it's what happens when we do what we do. Well, this is one song I actually prefer Vince's vocal on the remix. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but I but I do like the song. It's one of my favorite songs on the record because there's there's a dimension to this. There's uh, you know, as far as the, the writing is concerned, there's there's a depth here uh, that that is in this song that um, you know they weren't just going to be. A one, four, five, you know, rock and roll band, you know, you know, 
just one loud guitar and a, and a, and a smoking, you know, rhythm section. Obviously, they had you know that was you, that would just steamroll over the top of you, which they obviously could do, and they did. But I think they flexed their musical muscle a little bit on this, and this is a great way to close the album out. It's one of my favorite Butler Crew songs as well. Mike? Yeah, in a way, it reminds me of uh, the Rod Stewart song, The Killing of Georgie, in a way. It's like a tragic, you know, tale, in a way, that needs to be told, you know, and, and this is just a personal, you know, approach, and it's obviously a lyric co-write between uh, Vince and Nikki, so that came from somewhere. Yeah, I love the song too. I mean, I think it's really interesting that he he names Frankie. Obviously, Nikki Six's real name uh, was mm. Frankie, you know. Mm. And Nikki has talked about how he felt like when he changed his name, he killed Frankie, you mm. know. So that's one way to kind of interpret and look at the song. But also, you know, it's interesting because the song itself doesn't tell a consistent story necessarily mm. per se. It talks about oh, you know, all their dreams you know, she knew from the start all their dreams would come true. And then either he dies by suicide or some damn punk with a switchblade knife takes his life. And in a way, it doesn't really matter. But it's interesting because at the time, they didn't know all their dreams would come true, right? So there's kind of a, 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 prof a prophetic side to this song and Nikki would go on to overdose and almost die you know yeah. and get into fights that you know um where he was injured and there's that that kid rock song uh that he wrote where he talks about like it's hard to hang out in a room right because he's so famous mm -hmm. and he goes and when I wrote that song it was easy to hang out in a room <laughs> because I wasn't famous. <laughs> Nobody gave a shit who I was, you know, but that all came true anyways, you know, and I, and I think that this song is interesting from that perspective, that so much of what he's prophesizing actually came true. It's almost like that Alan Moore thing of life goes on to imitate art. There's a great thing in the From Hell comic book where they talk about it was really hip then for young people to go into convulsions and, and tell prophecies, right? And so they would go into convulsions and tell prophecies about who Jack the Ripper was and things like that and, and, and pretend they were psychic. And on some level, they believed it. And one of the famous lines in that comic is, you know, we made it all up and it all came true anyway. And that's kind of how I feel <laughs> like this song is. Yeah, that's a good way to, yeah. It is interesting to listen to it and that they didn't even realize that they were gonna become something. Um, and this being their prophecy about mm. becoming something, yeah. Well said. Yeah, so we should talk a little bit uh, about the, the cover too. Obviously, uh, Vince Neil's crotch which is an homage to sticky fingers rolling stones cover in some way um and then the back of the album correct me if i'm wrong but aren't they all okay they have the the four of them and then in the middle is a pair of sunglasses right which i think is the is the fun the yeah. funniest thing because again I'm sure that's Nikki Six's sense of humor. This whole self-conscious, like, look at us, we're worshiping at the idol of coolness, right? We're so, like, L.A. and so California that, like, what is at the center of all this? Like, Joe Cool in a pair of sunglasses. Yeah, uh, I'll buy that. That actually makes sense. I'm sort of fascinated. I um, Is this really the first band to sort of use the pentagram as a 
um, because I mean, the pentagram is at first is such a cliched thing to use. I mean, it's such a like, are you serious? You know what I mean? Like, doesn't everybody use the, the I mean, even when it, when it happened, I was like, that's ridiculous because doesn't everybody know that that's, you know, it's such a tired symbol. Motley Crue is not the first band to use it. Blackie Lawless was in a band called Sister. They were the first band on the LA scene to use it. And Nikki actually went to Blackie and said like, hey man, I know you guys have used this before, but now you're building a new band called Wasp. Would you mind if I use this for Motley Crue? Right, but again, it's such a tired ass symbol that it's like, I mean, the, there's more creativity in the double dots, you know, the umlauts over the uh, O and the U in Motley Crue than there is in using a pentagram. Um, I'm just sort of fascinated by it because technically if you use the pentagram turned upright, it is no longer a satanic symbol. It's just a Kabbalah symbol or whatever. Right. But once you apparently turn the arrow down, it becomes something because it's showing the horns of the goat, which symbolize the devil and all that kind of stuff that it becomes technically a symbol of evil. Um, but then it also still doesn't necessarily have any correlation at all. It can also be considered a symbol for protection, right. you know what I mean? The circle and that kind of stuff. So you could almost say that they're using it as like a symbol for protection. We all know that, you know, Ronnie James Dio created the, you know, the, the devil horns, which is actually sort of a, you know. I love you in sign language. <laughs> I love you. Yeah, yeah. Or is a. John know, Lennon, actually. Yeah, so it's it's um, or Gene Simmons in, imi imitating the uh, Spider-Man web thing. Right. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Right. So uh, I th I always thought it was kind of interesting because it was so you know I mean it was an automatic turnoff to our parents. You know what I mean? I mean that was the whole reason, John. Yes. I think had, that was the, it was the whole reason to me. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, it was I'm entirely sure, but the, the 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 catalyst behind that. That is a big middle finger to the establishment to older, you know, to, to parents, exactly the thing that would get a kid to go, Hey, my parents hate it. I'm, you know, it's controversial. I'm going to go get it. I think that was yeah. probably a lot of it. I do think that Nikki sort of dabbled in um, the occult and things like that. I mean, they talk about it in the dirt when he was living with Lita Ford, how they would do seances and have rituals and things started getting weird when things started floating, you know, in there. And, you know, he taught, he claims that Gene Simmons came up to him at one point and said, Hey, don't mess with that shit. Mm. You know, so take it for what you will. Um, if, if you, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but if you listen to the original demo, of Shout at the Devil, um, it's written in the first person, right? And supposedly, it, they still say Shout at the Devil, but it's I'm the wolf uh, screaming lonely in the night. And supposedly, the original title was Shout with the Devil. But then again, he stole the name of, uh, of the song from a movie called Shout at the Devil. So take it for what you will. Yeah, a friend of ours mom was a big, um you know, Christian. And I remember she was sort of like a little wigged out, but never really judged it. You know what I mean? Like didn't, uh, didn't refuse her son's, you know, listening to the album or whatever. Um, I think, you know, I think back to it, I think my parents pretty much kind of ignored it um, before saying anything, you know what I mean? About it. So I don't know. Um, 
because I've always just thought there's a there's a band by or there's a song by the band uh, the Mountain Goats called um, the uh, best heavy metal band out out of Denton, Texas is the name of the song. Okay, <laughs> and uh, one of the lines is um, about you know using heavy or uh, using graphics that heavily used pentagrams. Um, you know, and then it's about them, these two guys trying to start this band and the parents flipping out and sending one of them away. Hmm. Um, and the end of the album or the end of the song is just him over and over going, hail Satan, hail Satan. You know, as the, the kid actually goes from just using the image to becoming, you know, uh, because what of his, what his parents have done to him, you know, rather than just letting him play with the idea of it, I guess. But I don't know. It's just sort of interesting. I mean, just from the, the art teacher perspective, taking, you know, sort of the concept of the costumes from Kiss. I mean, doesn't even, Nick Mars even like spits blood during the Livewire video. And, yes. and Nikki Six sets fire to himself. And they have the, um, you know, the sort of, fakey fake Indian war paint kind of thing going, which is probably lifted from Kiss as much as it is from, you know, Adam Ant. Yes. John, John, you know, your point, your point too is that isn't rock and roll, every generation of rock and roll about pushing the envelope, mm -hmm. trying yeah. to, trying to one up, you know, the shock value of the, of the, the, the generation before it, you know, before it. And if you look at, even just look at the, the influence of the Rolling Stones that sit on this cover. Yep. Well, Satanic mm -hmm. Majest Majesty's Request album. Yeah. You know, right. those, you know, was that those type of things in Nikki's mind when he was putting this together, say, look, they've already done that. Kiss has already done what Kiss has done. How do you take it to that next level of, of the shock value? Alice Cooper did what Alice Cooper did. You know, where do we go from here? And that's what rock and roll has a tendency to do. Look what today we have Ghost, right? Right. Um, so uh, yeah, I, true. I, I kind of think it's Nikki almost being a little calculated. I, I don't know if it was so much as his religious beliefs or anything like that. I don't buy that. Uh, but I just think it's part of the, 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 the rock and roll journey. And I think, you know, I, I never thought anything of it more than that when I saw it. Well, it's taken for the band I'm thinking of is Venom. Venom was the Venom, first band. Yeah. The, the pentagram at the same time that they were. And Venom was around about the same time as Motley Crue, right? I they, mean, were on, they were on Enigma or Metal Blade, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but they were sort of contemporaries and Venom just went out and said, yeah, we worship the devil, this is what we do. You know, I eat babies at night, you know, and that kind of <laughs> stuff, they totally played it, played it up. Whereas Motley Crue never, you know, I remember seeing some interview even as a kid where they were like, oh, you better check how you read the words because we're saying shout at the devil, not with them. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think ever since Screaming Jay Hawkins came out of a coffin and had a skull on a, you know, a walking stick. Uh, and even before that, I'm, you know, there are, I'm sure, plenty of examples. I think it's great that I was able to raise my son to a certain extent with a, a love and appreciation of bands like Kiss and Motley Crue, but he has discovered his own music at 12 years old that I, you know, some of it I think is okay, some of it I kind of like, but some of it I can't relate to at all. And thank God, that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, the, I mean, your musical tastes as a young person growing up are one of the very first ways that you can define yourself as being separate and your own person and independent from your parents and independent from society and thinking and making your own personal choices for yourself. And to me, it was part of that. 
Right. I can get behind Kendrick Lamar, but Chance the Rapper is just too damn weird for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just, I'll, I'll just point out the fact that, you know, yes, you can be influenced by all kinds of music and experiences, but at the same time, too, imagine if we were all blind and we didn't know what album cover art looked like and we didn't know what like a visual thing was going on in a live concert. But if you were at a concert and you heard a record and that, that, audio quality spoke to you whether it was a record or like a live concert blasting like 120 decibels spoke to you that's the thing that means the most to me you know i'm sorry like yeah. if you took me to the kiss concert in 1979 it was just the first concert i ever saw in my life it, i'm telling you for god's sakes you know like i that volume level and that power would have spoke to me no matter what if i even couldn't see what was going on and i wouldn't do that you know Distill that down to the, you know this record with Motley Crue. Like if you just heard this record, you know no wonder those guys got label support and and, and they could do what they did. Beyond that, because they deserve better. You know th this record might be the the ultimate Motley Crue record, but they they obviously achieved that that success later with like you know albums like Doctor Feelgood and, and Shout the Devil. They had that support because they had you know sonically what was important. In a way, it's kind of weird it took them as long as it did because yeah. this this album is so strong and they were headlining a 3,000 seat yeah. you know, theater in Santa Monica. I mean, almost the same thing that was going on with Twisted Sister in the yeah. East, except Twisted Sister was playing you know 3,000 seaters multiple nights a week for months and they couldn't get arrested. So, you know, there, there was a lot of, I think, antipathy on the part of the record labels. It didn't matter how good you were or how popular you were as a band, they really didn't want to sign you unless you, you made it impossible for them not to. But it's also at the same time too, like think about the fact that, you know, maybe, you know, it's just getting ahead of ourselves again, but like, you know, the fact that, you know, Kiss had Motley Crue open for them on the Shout the Devil tour, right? They saw something, yeah. you know, that they, they, they recognized that this is good. And, and they were not shy about the fact that, like, this might be competitive with what we used to do <laughs> or what we do, but, you know, they, they brought them on, you know. That takes a lot of camaraderie in a way, you know. It does. I don't think any band other than Kiss has quite the track record they do for having bands open for them that went on to be so hyper successful. Any final thoughts about Too Fast for Love? I mean, it's, it's just interesting because it is, to, to me, it is Motley Crue's second album because Motley Crue's first album for me was um, Shout at the Devil. And then it was, <laughs> then I discovered this. Yeah. And it's also interesting too. It's like at the time Shout at the Devil came out or was you know being worked on, Nikki didn't want Elektra to re-release this album. He oh. looked at it as a bunch of demos and he said, look, that was okay for the time, but you know, we've moved beyond that. I've got so many ideas, I've got so many songs, I've got so much I want to do that like let's just, you know, you're just gonna hold us back if you put this album out. And now, of course, it's considered a classic, and I'm sure he feels quite differently about it, but funny how one's perspective can change over time. It's not, it's not Shout at the Devil, but it's a very solid, good rock album. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, great to see you all. And uh, we'll be back next week to do Shout at the Devil. Mm -hmm.